0: Hi, everyone. Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the Sustainable Investing Perspectives podcast here on the UBS Conversations podcast channel. Joining us for the conversation, glad to welcome back from the UBS Chief Investment Office, Amatia Muhadini. Amatia is a sustainable and impact investing strategist for the Americas with UBS CIO. Uh, glad to have with us on the line today as well, Lucy Thomas of UBS Asset Management. Lucy serves as the head of sustainable investing. So, Amatia, Lucy, it's great to be with you both. Thank you for spending some time today with our listeners, our clients. Looking forward to the conversation. Welcome.
1: Great to join you, Dan. Thanks, Dan. Pleasure to be online with
0: you both. Absolutely. So before we get into our conversation up front, I do want to point out for our listeners, our clients of UBS, that today's conversation, it will tie right in to the latest edition of the monthly Sustainable Investing Perspectives publication from the Chief Investment Office, which can now be located up on UBS.com slash CIO, of course, for clients listening in. Simply reach out to your UBS financial advisor if you would like to receive a copy of the publication directly. But with that, let's dive right in. I know there's a lot we want to catch our listeners up on. So, Amantia, in the latest edition of SI Perspectives, you do discuss developments in the green bond space, and the European Union, for some context, has reached a provisional agreement on the new standards. So, Amantia, can you tell us a bit about the agreement and how is it different from what is already in place?
2: Yeah, happy to, and of course, um, always a lot happening in the space of sustainable investing and sustainable finance. Um, so the, the European Union did reach this provisional agreement. It's provisional in that it will still need to be formally ratified. Um, and after it is uh, kind of approved as law in the EU, it would kick into place at about 12 months after that approval. Um, the agreement sets up a new uh, labor or, or, or a new way for issuers to issue bonds with uh, an objective to use proceeds for environmental objectives, um, that will be called the EUGD, or the European Union Green Bond. Now, the standard outlines the criteria that issuers uh, that wish to use this EUGD label need to follow, and uh, the more, most important of these criteria is that the proceeds of all of these uh, EU Green Bonds will need to be invested in activities that are aligned to the European Union taxonomy for sustainable finance. Now. As a quick reminder here uh, for our listeners, the EU taxonomy establishes six environmental objectives uh, that the EU seeks to incentivize investment around. And these environmental objectives are climate change mitigation, climate change adaptation, sustainable use of water, transition to a circular economy, pollution prevention, and biodiversity protection and restoration. Um, These environmental objectives, the EU has gone further uh, and has established, a list for the economic activities that they see as eligible for alignment with these objectives. And in in particular, um, so far we have guidelines uh, officially for the first of those objectives on climate change mitigation and adaptation. So if you think back to then uh, companies that seek to issue bonds uh, that, that aim to have this label of EUGDs, um they can invest um, the proceeds in activities that range from renewable energy storage, renewable energy production, and by the way, this would include natural gas and nuclear under kind of that um, bucket of traditional energy in the European Union, but also other broad activities that could include water collection, that could include transportation for, for rail transport, or even building renovation when it comes to building greening. Um, in addition to specifying activities that can qualify, the standard also requires companies to show how these investments will support the company transition plan to prepare for, for a climate transition and also will need to be disclosed according to a specific template, as well as um, now there will be in place a registration system for those third-party reviewers of these green bonds. So all in all, I mean, the system, uh, we're seeing it as, as fairly comparable to what already is in place, but with some really critical changes or, or, or elements of difference here. I'd say uh, currently there's no global regulatory uh, uh, label or or regulatory driven certification for green bonds. And instead, of what we have in place is a, a voluntary kind of uh, guidance uh, that is issued by the Climate Bonds Initiative that has taken ground largely in the marketplace. That has its own taxonomy that specifies its own kind of guidelines for companies on what they should use their user proceeds for and how to report against them. Um, the EU outlined EU outlined activities are fairly close in overlap with the CBI taxonomy, which means that mostly those issuers that have come to market so far with CBI aligned green bonds should still, you know, be likely to be eligible for this these. EU green bond label. However, one very key difference here is that the EU taxonomy also includes a provision to, quote, do no significant harm, end quote. And this means excluding certain issuers that uh, are in highly pollutive industries from qualifying from uh, kind of this taxonomy, as well as a few other significant harm criteria that the EU outlines. This could be an issue as it would potentially both disqualify companies, let's say utilities that have some coal exposure that want to use a green bond to move away from it, uh, would potentially be disqualified from this label. As well as it could disqualify some privately held companies that are large bond issuers that where the data on this do-no-significant-harm element is not as present, therefore creating some uncertainty for investors. So broadly I'd say, you know, in summary it's it's fairly close to what, what is out there now, but but some critical distinctions around the margins that will impact some issuers in the future.
0: Well Amantia, thank you for keeping us current on the developments. Clearly a lot taking place within the space and since we're on the topic of sustainable fixed income, Lucy, to welcome you into the conversation, it would be great to hear your perspective a bit. How are you seeing the market develop and where do you see opportunities in the area at the moment?
1: Absolutely. Thanks, Dan, and, and agree. Hats off to Amantia, Stephanie, and uh, Antonia on this sustainable investing perspective research that they produce, because it, it does give this insight, and it's very current on what's happening in a in a very fast-paced space, I can say. Hats off to listeners, too, for digging into wanting to Learn and Keep Up to the Speed with what's happening. So let's um, think a bit about perspective on the fixed income market and then reflect a bit about how that market is developing. Sustainable bonds give investors an opportunity to align how they're allocating with their sustainability objectives in, in, in quite a purposeful way. But taking a step back and looking at the fixed income market as a whole, and by that I include instruments that are not specifically deemed green or social or sustainable, we are actually see a big increase in consideration of sustainability issues and criteria. So investors are typically evaluating not just whether a bond and perhaps its use of proceeds or its linked targets are green, but are also evaluating the sustainability characteristics of the issuer for both sustainability-linked green bonds as well as general issuance. And so corporates and sovereigns who are raising capital are responding with improving disclosure and actions. Now, why do I mention this? Because it's important to remember that while we've, we've seen huge growth in sustainability bond issue, and so I think last year we exceeded the one trillion mark, great big milestone, but still niche in the context of overall market at approximately 130 trillion. So it's important to remember that sustainability considerations extend beyond perhaps just the labeled green or sustainability market. And I think that's very encouraging when we think about how powerful fixed income is as an asset class to drive change. When we take a topic like climate and the adaptation that can help countries and corporates build resilience, we look at something like the the recent IPCC report, and it will tell us that there's 127 billion needed a year by 2030 to adapt to climate change. And the good news is that there are lots of readily available solutions, and, and fixed income gives a risk control method for investors to demonstrate some of those sustainability outcomes and also meet their portfolio risk and return objectives from a diversification perspective. Um, You asked how the market is developing. I would say, in summary, there's been big improvements in issuance, pricing and choice. Typically, we've seen the market develop in two types of bonds here. So one is use of proceeds bonds. So that's funding projects with dedicated environmental or social benefits. Examples could be building renewable energy capacity or converting buildings to be green. The second is sustainability-linked bonds, and they don't necessarily finance specific projects, but rather they finance the general functioning of an issuer, but have explicit targets that are linked to the financing conditions. That could look like DE&I targets or carbon reduction targets, for example. When we look at sovereign issuance, we see countries around the world are really stepping up efforts to reduce carbon emissions, And half of the world's bond issuing countries now are issuing green bonds to finance climate action, which is really tremendous to see. We continue to see strong demand for green bonds from our investor base. Looking at the EU deal, for example, the book was 11 times oversubscribed. In terms of pricing across the market as a whole, the greenium that we historically have seen has narrowed considerably in recent years. and, And there's more choice. So the share of bonds issued by emerging market sovereign issuers has increased in the last few years. And we expect this will grow even more as the transformations are needed in emerging markets. And the choice broadens beyond green bonds as well into blue, social, sustainability-linked bonds, etc., So all in all, some really great momentum and some really great choice uh, emerging for investors in this space.
0: Yeah, Lucy, it's encouraging to hear about that progress. And as you outlined, it sounds like there's a lot of opportunity within the sustainable fixed income space. So thank you for highlighting those considerations for our listeners. Lucy, you did make mention of the IPCC, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. If we switch out of fixed income, switch gears a bit, though, staying on the topic of the environment last month the ipcc they did publish their final report on climate change so i'm curious lucy were there any key points in particular within the report that caught your attention
1: for sure dan and i love that you actually spell out what the acronym is so much jargon and acronym in our space it's important to kind of put all of this in context so let's let's do that first so i would say first of all we think about this report as a summary for policymakers in simple terms um, this is probably one of the most, IPC produced some of the most comprehensive and best available scientific assessment of climate change. Uh, they've been produced roughly every five years since launch in 1988. And this one is a synthesis report, so it draws together in 37 pages the findings of 10,000 pages of several reports over the last five years. And it brings together the findings of 234 scientists on physical science of climate change 270 scientists on the impact, adaptation, and vulnerability to climate change, and 278 scientists on climate change mitigation. A lot of brain power uh, gone into those 37 pages. This latest report doesn't contain necessarily any new science, but it does provide a useful recap of the main findings. So hence, I call it a summary for policymakers. So what does it say? Um, I'm assuming your listeners won't mind us wading into spoiler territory on this much awaited episode of IPCC reports. So the Golden Globe type attention from commentators went to one particular statement in the report and, and, and you'll see that in the commentary across the press. And this was that the choices and actions implemented in this decade will have impacts now and for thousands of years. Why is that important? really because this statement has had to have been agreed by more than 190 countries involved in the process. And you can imagine that's not an easy uh, thing to make happen, but it does tell you that there's consistency and alignment around the globe about the seriousness of the current moment with both opportunity and risk ahead. If we look to ask what Robin Tomatoes' review would say in this um, release, they would call it a grim read, but with hope. So the report looks at the devastating consequences of rising GHG emissions we think talking about destruction of homes, loss of livelihoods, fragmentation of communities, as well as pointing out the increasingly dangerous and irreversible risks should we fail to change course. But the hope that's there is that the report does set out pathways to avoid these risks. So readily available, and in some cases, cost-effective actions that can be undertaken now to reduce emissions, scale up carbon removal, and build build resilience the things that stood, three things stood out for me. Um, these are the must-watch scenes or the standouts. I would highlight and welcome uh, number one, the focus on interdependencies. So this um, point that climate impacts on people and ecosystems are more widespread and severe than expected, and with every fraction of a degree of warming, the risks will rise rapidly. And the report recognises this interdependence of climate, ecosystems, biodiversity, and human societies. Putting this a little bit in context, half of the global population has water scarcity for at least one month per year. That's half of the global population. Since 2008, extreme floods and storms have forced over 20 million people from their homes every year. And since 1961, crop productivity in Africa has shrunk by one third. So every degree of warming will intensify these threats, and it gives you a sense of some of the the other impacts of climate. I'd reflect that we often hear biodiversity in the last couple of years talked about as the next big topic, but rather we see it as an extension and closely interlinked with climate. Indeed, as we extend our climate corporate engagement program in the area of how corporates are using nature-based solutions in in how they're decarbonizing their own own, uh, businesses, we're focused on researching and encouraging the use of solutions that are both emission-reducing positive and biodiversity positive, rather than looking at those solutions through a more narrow lens of what's only emissions reducing positive. So the second must watch scene for me was adaptation measures are proven and readily available, but more finance is needed to scale these solutions. That's what the biggest challenge is, the scaling. And often um, the report points out that these um, solutions will bring broader benefits at the same time, such as social and biodiversity. And last, the not to miss scene decarbonisation is not enough so carbon removal is now essential to limit us to rise of uh, of 1.5 degrees. Solutions can be technical so that's literally pulling carbon out of the atmosphere or natural solutions so using what mother nature does very well sequestering and storing carbon in the trees and soil and nature based solutions is one where we're spending a lot more time on and see some very interesting opportunities for investors Where the demand for carbon credits outstrips the current supply thinking about carbon as a potentially non-correlated source of return for investors with a tangible impact on on the planet, we think is is a super exciting space.
0: Well, Lucy, thank you for sharing with us some takeaways, quite eye-opening, and the alignment you cited as well, in some cases, very powerful and telling. So, Amantia, I'm curious to hear about some investable takeaways that you see from the call to action from the IPCC. What can you share with us?
2: Yeah, of course. And and thank you, Lucy, for that great summary. Um, um, I, I think it is kind of the, the most watched reel <laughs> uh, for the report. And let me just pick up there on some investable ideas. over, already started touching on a lot of the ideas that we're seeing as well. Um, I'll start by saying that uh, it, it, it's, it's a good tagline, grim but hopeful, and we're really looking to focus on that area of hope here. To identify what are those areas of financing, um, that, that, that private investors as well as institutional investors can really, uh, come in on to, to help accelerate this climate transition to help, uh, to help us potentially get to that T2 degree at, at the minimum, um, kind of, deep warming, uh, goal, if not the 1.5 degree, um, as well as while well, finding those investable opportunities. So I'd say, uh, picking up one of your first points on investing in nature, we would agree. Um, we find that investing in nature is, is very closely tied to both adaptation as well as mitigation. And we think that nature-based solutions um, and and sustainable land management have been effective and can be effective ways to do both of those kind of or, or work towards both of those goals. And in terms of what this looks like for for investors. Um, At a minimum in the near term, we see opportunities tied to themes around the future of food or, or specifically around agricultural yield as we're thinking about how we can reduce and change our, our dependency on nature while remaining still highly productive and meeting our other global goals that we have around you know meeting global demand for food for example so agricultural yield is one of those themes that we find um, interesting and tied to some of these conclusions. Um, more broadly, a lot of the, the ideas here come in that area of mitigation. Um, what's really critical is is uh, accelerating the process of decarbonizing power and decarbonizing the grid around the world. And, of course, this is an area where we've seen and we've talked in this podcast about a lot of the positive innovation, um, but also it's an area that will not be a straight line of progress. Um, it will uh, be sort of topsy-turvy, <laughs> um, as as as, uh, as change comes, um, and yet areas of investment like renewable energy, energy storage, uh, energy efficiency, smart mobility, all of these areas will continue to be important and also will present compelling uh, returns over the longer term, in our view. Um, it's tied to mitigation and almost sitting at the cross of mitigation and adaptation is something like energy efficiency which is a way to think about this problem of, of energy from a demand side, right, from a perspective of uh, consumers of energy, let's say corporates or governments or even homeowners, managing energy efficiency will mean um, a way for them to manage volatile energy costs as we go through this transition. And so from an investment perspective, they'll be compelling. It also means that it's potentially a way to reduce carbon emissions. So from a climate perspective, that's, again, compelling and another idea to think about. Um, so, above here, you know, we 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 would agree it's um, the report was interesting. It is driven uh, to kind of policymakers. Uh, primary, primarily, primarily. Um, but it's also interesting that because it's a UN report, it had to be approved by delegates of all 193 countries, which means it went through a lot of political uh, kind of behind-the-scenes discussions, surely, and the fact that it still comes out with strong um, language around the importance to invest in climate is, is a lesson for us in the business community as well, to continue to look for where these opportunities do exist.
0: Well, there seems to be a lot there, Amati, uh, in the way of investment takeaway for our listeners, our clients to be mindful of and explore. So thank you for sharing those with us. If we move away from the environment over to social issues, in the past, for some context, the Chief Investment Office team has printed about ways of investing through private markets to drive positive impact. So, Amatia, when it comes to social themes, where do you see opportunities at the moment?
2: Yeah, of course. And, and, you know, it's hard to talk about the environment without thinking of how it impacts people. But of course, as we think about social issues, there are many social issues that are pressing today and that are creating opportunities for innovation that private market solutions can come in and and help address. Um, We also talk a lot about this idea of impact and change. And um, as, as we've discussed before, we see private markets really as an opportunity for investors to drive change that can be attributable to them, right? Change that they can know that it's happening because of their additional dollars that are going to to this investment, um, and and you know in addition to how private markets, in our view, can help diversify portfolios as well as be compelling in in the current market environment. So thinking about these social issues, just to switch gears a little bit here from the environment, um, we're we're thinking of three things right now as particularly compelling areas where. Um, we think uh, private market opportunities can, can bring some of this change as well as investability. Um, the first one of the three areas would be biotechnology as well as genetic therapies. So we see opportunities in this area of early stage uh, treatments on virology as well as genetic therapies. And, and part of what's driving this view is the fact that the pandemic highlighted the severe weaknesses in our collective global response to viral, to viral disease. So, you know, while we were able to prevail uh, against kind of COVID through the, the very rapid creation and development and scaling of COVID vaccines, um, there are many other viral diseases like hepatitis, like HIV, like HPV that remain challenges globally and pharma companies and society are still looking to address and innovate on. So in private markets, we think this will create a very interesting and compelling opportunity to, to really help bring capital to an area that needs to be capitalized. To, to have this impact at a global scale. Now, a second area uh, that, that is slightly different is education. Um, education technologies, education platforms, we think will continue to scale, in part driven by growing middle class globally and a global understanding and, and more um, demand for opportunities to advance uh, economic outcomes through education as an unlock. And here it's interesting because, again, it was COVID-19 that showed to us uh, the ability for technology to help uh, uh, people across the world to get access to information as well as education. And so we think that that trend will continue over time. It wasn't just a blip of the pandemic um, as, as our social habits changed, and so we see opportunity there. Um, of course, what's important there from an impact perspective is affordability of education, access of education, as well as quality of education, which are all areas of impact that we would look for. And then finally, um, diversity and equality is another area that we find compelling, both in public and in private markets, from an investment opportunity. Um, in public markets, it looks like companies that are more diverse and therefore may get a diversity bonus, <laughs> so to speak, on, on, on their performance through improved innovation. But within private markets, we opportunities from those companies that are providing solutions to uh, underserved uh, communities. Um, So things like financial inclusion or economic empowerment could actually be that next area of growth that would be interesting and compelling to think about.
0: Well, thank you, Amantia, for highlighting those social themes and how to unlock opportunity within. Lucy, to bring you into the conversation a bit beyond social issues, what are you and UBS Asset Management seeing as being the most effective ways to drive impact? And where is your team finding opportunities at the moment?
1: Great. One of our one of our favourite topics at the moment, impact investing, and, and how it's had a momentum and, and how it's growing. So I'd start with just reflecting that we think about impact in in three different dimensions. So that's intentionality, additionality, and measurability. So intentionality, I want to achieve something positive sustainability outcomes with my investments as well as financial returns. That could be improved health outcomes, for example. Additionality. It is only impact if those outcomes would not have otherwise occurred without my investment. So that could be engaging with a company to set targets around uh, something that is going to be impactful. And measurability. The outcomes need to be measured and reported for transparency and to be sure that the impact is being achieved. So the measurement of the progress against those targets and the assessment of the impact for consumers or products, for example, So in listed markets, when we think about impact, um, active ownership then becomes really key. Uh, What you can't be is a lazy landlord. Uh, You've got to be involved. You've got to have a seat at the table and encourage the change um, from sustainability perspectives. So this looks like proxy voting in equities and corporate engagement really across listed markets, across both um, the fixed income and the um, the equity side. In active ownership, we like to stay focused on outcomes. And using evidence based research to encourage improvement in sustainability criteria with the corporates that we're invested in. So it's less about the number of meetings we have with corporates and we really want to focus on the outcomes achieved and moving beyond just things like improved disclosures. I think that's the, 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 the advanced form of active ownership that we're seeing in the market now, which is really taking a little bit more of an impact lens. I mean, it's a, it's a really powerful strategy to influence change. When you sit in front of the chair or CEO or CFO and you bring evidence-based research, So you, you show them the benchmarking of very specific metrics versus their peers, or you bring them some fundamental analysis that talks about if they deploy CapEx now to avoid future carbon costs, um, it is NPV positive for the, for the shareholder, as well as some obvious environmental benefits too when it comes to private markets for impact uh three three big advantages here when we think about private markets one is the governance rights so typically you will have more rights to control or or strong influence on change the second is that it's often primary capital in private markets not not always but it can be and so the additionality there you know would this impact have happened without this investment can be can be very obvious otherwise it may not have been funded and then lastly, typically a private market or a real asset is very tangible to the community or the society in which it's based and the environmental impact or its footprint. Um, and obviously then within private, com- private equity or private companies, this is often where we'll see innovation and new technologies, or new concepts that come to life and have the ability to accelerate change or impact. Finally, I would say that it's important to remember that impact can be very personal, so just like understanding risk appetite is crucial to achieving appropriate returns, understanding sustainability preferences and the associated desired outcomes is key to understanding appropriate impact style strategies. So I would challenge listeners to think about, do I want to be invested in best in class? That means those companies that are already producing impactful products and services and growing. Or do I want to be a change maker, which might be investing in those companies that are taking the lead in transitioning and pivoting their businesses from brown to green to be more sustainable and thus having a positive impact on people and planet.
0: Well, Lucy, thank you for sharing those investment takeaways. Very productive conversation. We covered a lot of ground for our listeners, our clients. Of course, a lot here that we'll continue to track and that we can follow up on, though. Thank you both again for your insights and joining us here on the Sustainable Investing Perspectives podcast.
1: Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Mantia.